Welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson here, excited to talk with you today about the second half of the Book of Romans. This wonderful epistle of Paul is one of his greatest treaties on grace and the need for a balance between grace and works. It's written, as we remember, when Paul was in Corinth. It's probably during his third mission in the winter times of the winter of 57 to 58 AD. And if you want to go back and look at some of the historical background for this, it falls in the book of Acts, chapters 18 to 21. Just as a reminder, the book of Romans has a few themes, the redemption through Christ, not the Mosaic law, the plan of salvation and the justification by faith. I mentioned last week that this is often referred to as a diatribe, this argument between an opponent and he gives a question and then he gives his answer and he gives a, an argument and then he explains it, you know, but I, I feel more that his book is a development. Yes, it's a question and answer. Yes, it's a diatribe, but he develops this theory and he continues to build on it. So you can't just take one or two verses out of context. To me, the book of Romans is very difficult to understand if you just take a verse out of itself and try to state a theology by one verse, because the whole verse is part of a beautiful symphony of theology. And he's developing things and you have to have the notes in reaction or else you misunderstand things. It's like the old idea of looking at the elephant by the tail or the looking at the elephant by the trunk. You know, you're getting the whole wrong image. You've got to look at the book of Romans in the whole way. Another thing that's difficult about the book of Romans is when we assume that the King James translation is recording what Paul intended. The book of Romans, I think, should be read in many different translations. If we just look at the King James, we're getting a Reformed tradition, people that believed in the Calvinistic thought of only the elect are saved, that all humanity are deprived, that the atonement only affects a few who are saved. You know, it's, it's a very different interpretation than we will if we look at many different translations, especially the Joseph Smith translation. The book of Romans, though, is the greatest treatise that we have the need for both grace and works. The word grace is mentioned 20% of the time in the book of Romans and good works 30% of the times. I mentioned earlier that there's going to be a lot of emphasis on salvation. Seven times he refers to salvation, nine times to justification, but 17 times to the grace of God. And the reason why Paul does this so many times is because the people that he's talking to, he says, I'm talking to those people who are immersed in the law people who understood the law of Moses. I think there's a lot of Jewish converts that he's talking to in this text. And he wants to explain to them that even though after the Babylonian exile and after the exile to Assyria, you know, for 600 years as the Israelites came back and spread all over the Roman um, Empire, we have about 10% Jewish populations in many of the big cities and 20% of some of them. As they're dispersed all over the place, they held onto their laws. They developed these 10,000 oral laws. And they said, we can be saved by complete obedience to the law. And Paul is trying to say, no, it's not the micromanaging of these 10,000 oral laws, or which Jesus referred to as the traditions of the Jews. It is our Savior. And he repeats over and over again this need to come unto Christ. It's a beautiful testimony that Jesus is our Redeemer. Let's start with chapter 7, Christ's power to change lives. This is such a gift, and I believe it all is stemmed around the gift of repentance. He divides the chapter into three sections. Verses 1 to 6, our need to leave the deadness of the old law. 7 to 13, the relationship between sin and the law. And then he concludes in verses 14 to 25, 
in this propensity of the flesh or our natural man to sin, that it's part of humanity that we have this nature with a lot of satanic influence, that we have this natural man, that the flesh goes to things that are uh, needing to be controlled by God's laws, needing to be directed by Christ's teachings, needing to be held into the bounds that the Lord requires. He also refers to the need for Christ to change our sinful nature into the nature of man. He calls it a child of Christ. It sounds to me a lot like King Benjamin's sermon, these sections in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read from the NIV translation because that's the one that always gets the gender right. Brothers and sisters, I am speaking to those of you who know the law. He's referring to the law of Moses. And then in verse 5 to 7, he jumps down and says, When we were in the flesh and the motions of sin that were in us by the law did work into our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Well, Joseph Smith completely changes that. He adds, not according. I think this is so helpful. Many times the changes in the book of Romans by the Joseph Smith completely change the meaning to the opposite meaning. It's very important to either look at your index or your footnotes or a different translation. I like the height um, version of the Joseph Smith translation because I can see which words were crossed out. Otherwise, online we have the Joseph Smith translation at the Joseph Smith papers and also at our different websites. But now we're delivered from the law. And then he took out that being death and adds being dead to the law that we should serve the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. See, that was the problem. They wanted to live the letter of the law. They were trying very hard to live exactly how many steps they had to count, where they could spit on the Sabbath, what they could do on any other day, you know, how many days apart they could you know, it was just tragic the way that they manipulated these little micromanaged the law. So then he adds at the end of verse seven, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. And he repeats that 10 times in this book. He's never suggesting that we live without God's law. He's just suggesting that we live without these traditions, these oral laws that completely confined and restricted the um ability to see Christ. It didn't, the law was to lead us to Christ, but the oral laws took us away from the Messiah. And so he's, he's condemning that. Do you remember in King Benjamin's sermon when it refers to the natural man as an enemy to God? That's Mosiah 319. If you can read the book of Romans and insert the natural man, every time you read flesh or sin, I think you'll get a better feel for what he's talking about. I think the book of Romans is often misunderstood by many Christians to talk about the depravity of man, to justify the fact that humanity is born wicked, we are sinful, we are naturally sinful, and without Christ, we cannot be saved. You know, part of that is right, but part of it is wrong. We are told in the book of Mormon, Moroni chapter 8, Mormon is speaking, and he says, the atonement of Jesus Christ covers children. We are not born sinful. We are born sinless and we begin to sin but by the time we are accountable for our sins we need to repent daily in fact according to our prophet and yield unto the spirit so that we become purified through the atonement of jesus christ in romans chapter 7 verse 14 we've got some great joseph smith translations and on my slides and on my handouts i always put the joseph smith translations in red and i show you the cross outs of what he does on the others so it helps to see what it used to say and the enormous doctrinal changes that Joseph makes here. Initially, it said, for we know the law is spiritual. Joseph changes that and says, for we know that the commandment is spiritual. And then he also adds, when I was under the law, 
I was yet carnal, sold under sin. And that's a complete change, you know, before it said, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You know, it's this idea of the depravity of man, this reformed tradition that was augmented by Calvin, um, but actually it was introduced by St. Augustine um, back in the third century. And so it filtered through, and it's a lot of the Greek philosophy of the time. So Paul's audience is well aware of this Greek philosophy that anything physical is sinful and anything spiritual is of God. That's a very well-known Neoplatonist kind of um, Roman and Greek philosophy that had infiltrated into Christianity by the third and fourth and fifth centuries. Here's another Joseph Smith translation in 715. Joseph Smith added, but now I am spiritual for that which I am commanded to do, I do. It said exactly the opposite in the King James. And Joseph continues to add, and that which I am commanded not to allow, I allow not. So he's saying now that we're Christians, we can obey the spirit. He continues on. The King James says, for what I would, that I do not. And Joseph Smith crosses that out and says, for what I would know is not right, I would not do. For that which is sin, I hate. And before, Paul said, that which is sin, I hate and I do it. I mean, it was just exactly the opposite. I'm so grateful for the King James translation and other good English translations that help rectify some of those changes. Then in verse 22 to 23, Paul continues on to talk about the challenge of the inward man, which I'm referring to as the natural man. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, meaning my flesh or my natural man, that wars against the law of my mind and brings me into captivity. A wonderful sermon that was given by Elder Holland when he was president of Brigham Young University on this very verse. And he quoted these two verses. And then he added, too often we are in servitude to our own bodies. I don't just mean the dramatic sins, anger that leads to a murder or passion that leads to sexual transgression or the lust that leads to theft. There are more common kinds of bondage than these. The war in our body of someone who's a little overweight that makes him huff and puff by the time he gets to the top of the stairs or the war of the mattress on our back that sometimes we can't shake in the morning. So we miss those precious, most inspirational hours of the day. All these are restrictive to the freedom if we don't control them. But of course, certain limitations are sometimes beyond our control. God has given disciples power to control the natural man through the power of his spirit. And I believe this is what Paul is getting to. If we can follow the spirit, if we can become a child of Christ, through his atonement, we then can be freed from this natural man. We can have the, the desire to wake up and to serve the Lord and to seek his wisdom and studies in the scriptures and to immerse ourselves in his word. I think that's what he's asking us to do. The next chapter, Roman 8, speaks of God's spirit and the ability to love all people. You know, before the law of Moses was saying, we are God's elect and the Gentiles are unclean. And now in Christianity, he says, no, all can be adopted into the tribes of Israel. All can be of God. All can give themselves to service of our creator. He divides this into six sections. He starts about the spirit in verses one through four, and then the natural man versus the being of God in verses five through 13. Verses 14 to 17 talks about the regenerative powers of the spirit or the cleansing powers of the spirit. And then he moves to verses 18 to 27 
on the ideas that all creation anticipates the redemption and the glory of God. And then he concludes in these last two sections, verses 26 to 30, God has called us to share in his glory. And in chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, he gives this beautiful hymn, and it's a praise of who can separate us from the love of God. That is probably the most well-known verses in all of the book of Romans, but especially in Romans chapter 8. He starts out in verse 2, making this beautiful parallel between the law of the Spirit and life in Christ. He says, for the law of the Spirit of the life of Christ Jesus has made me free. This parallelism between what the Spirit can do. And if we live the law of Christ and his life, then the law of the Spirit can work in harmony with a lifestyle that is in keeping with a disciple. He then attacks the human nature or this idea that we are inherently evil. Now, in the King James, it sounds as if he's trying to say we are inherently evil, but the Joseph Smith translation changes it in verse 8 to read, they that are after the flesh cannot please God. And he also repeats the same thing in Galatians and 1 Corinthians, and we'll talk about that later when we get to those. But he's talking about children of Christ being spiritually begotten. And I like this translation of the English Standard Version. It's a little more literal, and it's a little more consistent, I believe, with the Greek text says in chapter 8, verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption. You know, we are all adopted into Christ. He wants us to become part of his kingdom and he needs us to serve him. And as adopted children of Christ, we are to serve him. That was part of their culture. He doesn't have to say um, those words because if we're adopted, that means we're children, we're heirs, and we then will serve our father. The prophet Joseph Smith spoke on these verses and he said, every person who embraces the gospel becomes the house of Israel. In other words, they become members of the children of his lineage of Abraham's children. He skips down a little bit and he says, the great majority of those who become members of the church are literal descendants of Abraham through Ephraim, the son of Joseph. Those who are not literal descendants of Abraham and Israel must become such. And when we are baptized and confirmed, we are grafted into that tree and are entitled to all the rights and privileges as heirs. This is the blessing of adoption. This is the blessing of baptism. This is the blessing of living our covenants that we become heirs with Christ. Verse 17 then turns to the next subject about being a co-heir. And this is in the NIV translation. Then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This idea is repeated by Paul. It's repeated again in the book of Hebrews and Galatians and in the Doctrine and Covenants. I love it in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood, section 84. He also refers to becoming a co-heir in Christ. I want to continue on in the BSB translation of Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will reveal us in the hereafter. Now, Paul has gone through horrific sufferings by now. He's been stoned. He's been whipped. He's been scourged. He's been shipwrecked. And we just have to look at almost every prophet, and we can see a similar pattern in their lives. Joseph in Liberty Jail, our Savior, obviously, on the cross, as well as the emotional torture and the physical torture that preceded it. But he's saying, it's easy for me to endure these physical pains because I know, I believe, I can trust God that whatever I have to endure now as far as persecution is concerned will be so much better in the life hereafter. 
And as we continue on in verse 23, he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Now, this is in the English Standard Version, and he says, The fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. And we learn elsewhere in Galatians and Ephesians when he talks about the fruits of the Spirit, that they include love and joy and peace. And for people who said, you know, I'm not feeling the Spirit, I think, well, have you ever been happy? Have you ever been able to have an emotion? That's an experience of the Spirit. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And if you felt peace, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And he says that um, we want to feel these, we want to feel this connection with God when we can express those. Verse 28 says, all things work together for the good of them that love God. Now, that doesn't mean that all things, if you love God, are going to turn out well. In fact, the Lord had to teach Joseph in Liberty Jail. All things give you experience and experience can be used for your good if you humbly and meekly accept it. So I feel like my hardships, anything that's brought me to my knees, my suffering, my, my, my cancers, my blindness, my children, whatever it is that brings me strain and pain, when I take it to the Lord, when it takes me to my knees, it can be used for my good. And then the Joseph Smith translation, the very next verse, makes some changes again. For him who did foreknow, so this is talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ, who had a foreknowledge of all things. He did predestinate to be confirmed to his own image. Now, Joseph Smith has made some changes there, but interestingly, he does not take out the word predestinate. Now, in the King James Version, the word predestinate is mentioned many, many times, and it was interpreted by the Calvinists who became the Reformed traditions of Presbyterian and Congregationalist and Reformed Baptist and Reformed Dutch. There's many traditions that fall into that Reformed tradition. They follow the Westminster Abbey, and I've spent many years studying what this faith tradition believed. And all five of their tenets were denounced by Joseph Smith. All five were cut down in the Restoration. In fact, the Book of Mormon talks about all of them. And in their traditions, predestinate means you could not choose your behavior. You were either called to be the elect or you were damned. However, Paul is not teaching that. So Joseph is not necessarily saying, don't look at it from that perspective. Look at it from the perspective of foreknowledge. And as we go through the book of Romans, if you can just change that word to God's foreknowledge, he's allowing us opportunities and he has plans made for us, then it'll help your understanding of the theology, I think. The word predestinate in Greek is protozoan, and it's not always translated predestinate. In Acts chapter 4, that same Greek word is used to say determined before. And in 1 Corinthians, the same Greek word is used for ordained. So even though it's translated predestinate here, we could put in the word determined before or ordained like it is by the King James translators elsewhere. But the Greek word means to define before or the boundaries given before, to determine before. You know, it doesn't mean that there's uh, no ability to change, that you're completely bound in a prison. No, 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 no. There's a lot of freedom. Agency is an eternal principle of God. That is not what has been communicated here. I want to just read some other translations of this word predestinate that the King James uses. I like the Phillips translation. It's not a literal translation, but it's like the NIV. They use principle for principle. They're trying to communicate it in English. God, in his foreknowledge, chose them to bear the family likeness of his son. Isn't that beautiful? And the American Standard Version, for whom he foreknew, he also foreordained. That's very consistent with what the book of Abraham teaches us. In the CEV, it reads, 
He has always known who his chosen ones would be. In the Jerusalem Bible, which is the Catholic translation, they are the ones he chose specially long. And then one of the literal translations that I like is the young literal translation. Whom he did foreknow, he also did foreappoint. If you want to look at a lot of translations at once, I just get on biblehub.com. I type in the verse, and then you get 20 translations right there of that verse, and it's a little easier to understand. And you can click on the Greek or the Hebrew or what other Aramaic, you know, and see what other translations read there too. I mentioned this tradition of the five major themes of the Reformed tradition. And just as a review, I've talked about it earlier. The tulip is what they refer to it. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. But they're all denounced. Shortly after that verse on predestinations, we get to Romans 8, chapter 35 to 39, with this beautiful hymn on Christ's love. And we know the King James Version so well, I'd also like to read the NIV just to hear it with new ears. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus our Lord. No outside sources can move Christ's love. But many times in my life, I don't feel Christ's love. So what is separating me from Christ is my sins. My wickedness can separate me from Christ. If I do not feel the Spirit, there's something going on inside me. And sometimes it's mental illness. And sometimes it's medications. When I was on chemo, I had a very hard time feeling the Spirit. I had a hard time feeling anything. (laughs) It was pretty dangerous. But I feel that my sins can take me to my knees. And repentance and forgiveness can allow me to feel God's love again. Whenever I need to feel God's love, I just bend on my knees and plead for forgiveness. And most of the time, I feel so much love again. Most of the time when my repentance is sincere and humble and meek, I feel the Lord's arms around me and I feel an enormous outpouring of God's love. It's such an amazing thing to be encouraged while being corrected. As we move now to chapter nine in Romans, the first five verses are Paul's lament about his fellow Israelites. He's from Benjamin but the fellow kinsmen of, they're called Jews at the time. He's trying to explain in these first five verses that the birthright of Israel is not enough. We have got to live our covenants. He says in verse six, they are not Israel, which are of Israel. And he's saying, you're not all God's chosen people just because you have that birthright. The the blue blood is not what makes it. It's your heart, it's your actions, it's your behaviors. And then he talks about the generations before. He's talking about Rebecca and Isaac, you know, the children, Esau and Jacob. He says, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose or the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand. Not the works, but of him that calleth. We're not saved by what we're doing. We're saved by Jesus Christ. He's trying to combat this Jewish idea that literal obedience to the micromanaging 10,000 oral laws is what's going to get us to heaven. No, we need a redeemer. 
and he's already bought us back. He's already suffered for our sins. He's already atoned for us. He's already paid the price. We are only saved through the grace of God after all we could do. Verse 17 then says in the BLB tradition, I love this one. It's a very good literal translation. He shows mercy to them whom he wants and he hardens whom he wants. Now, this is exactly coming from this idea that God is in control and we are not allowed to remove ourselves from him. But that is not what he says in the next few verses. So you've got to keep reading. He says, God does not act arbitrarily in verses 24 to 29. And this just sounds so similar to the ideas that they had in the second great awakening. He gives four Old Testament quotes now in verses 25 to 29, and they're all showing God's foreknowledge. And he talks about real Israel as those people who actually are living the covenant. He quotes Hosea chapter two, where he says, I will call them to be my people, which were not my people. Then he quotes Isaiah chapter one, verse nine, that there will be a remnant saved. That's also repeated, by the way, in, in Isaiah 10, verse 22. But as we move down to Romans 9, 28, he says, he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. This is our hope as servants of Jesus Christ, that we can cut the calamities of the last days short in righteousness. Our prophet Joseph repeated this in Missouri, that we can cut the traumas of the last days if we would but serve him and completely live our covenants with him. That once the bride, once the church, once the saints, once Christians, once followers of Christ are living their covenants, then we can um, cut short the calamities of the last days. It has nothing to do with how wicked the world is. It has to do with the preparation of the saints, we're told. And even our own beloved prophet have said recently, the time is coming short. So this is our hope. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, talks about Israel's future salvation comes from faith in Christ. In verse one, it reads in the NIV, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for you is, and then verse two, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This idea of zeal without knowledge is something Joseph also spoke on. And he's quoting Romans when he was referring to this in a discussion with the Relief Society sisters. And Eliza R. Snow's handwriting is all recorded in the Joseph Smith papers that you can access online and read this. Because Joseph saw so many people who, who wanted to help and were willing to help, but without the right understanding, their help went to the wrong direction and they were doing things in the wrong way. And we see this not only amongst our neighbors, but in our own lives if we are not careful about praying for the right things and humbly and meekly asking God, what is the better and the best thing for me to pray for? What is the better and best thing that I can serve you as rather than haphazardly going forth? Verse three of chapter 10 reads, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted unto God. This is very consistent. You know, if we aren't attending a classroom with God, if we aren't going to the scriptures as if it was our lesson to learn from him every day, if we put our will above God's will, we're, we're going to be in trouble. And Paul is warning all Christians about that challenge. As we continue on to verse 5, I want to read to you from the Anchor Bible translation. The one who does these things will find life in them. This goes back to Alma 32. Faith is a seed, but we have to nurture it. And if we do these things, if we seek our Savior and we submit our will to God's laws, and if we submit our will to God's Spirit, we can grow and we will find life and we can bear fruit through the Spirit. 
as we serve God. He now turns to faith. Chapter 10, verse 6, the BLB translation reads, the righteousness of faith speaks. And I hope that our faith can beam through our eyes and that it beams through our fingers and our legs, that we walk by faith, we act by faith, we speak by faith so that others around us will know that we are Christians. Verse 10, also in the Anchor Bible reads, such faith of the heart leads to the uprightness, such profession of the lips to salvation. This is such great advice. We want to profess our faith with our lips. I just really appreciate those. I get in an Uber for a drive someplace and they immediately start talking about their faith. I so admire people who jump in and, and address their beliefs. Moving on to Romans chapter 10, verse 13, he quotes Joel, Joel chapter two, verse 32. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's talking about a temple text here. If we're going to be calling upon the name of the Lord, it's the same as the high priest going before the veil where the high priest is able to pronounce the name of the Lord. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, we are figuratively going to the veil and talking through God through the veil as if in prayer. So this is a temple text coming from that period of time when the temple was so important to the Christian tradition. Continuing on in chapter 10, Romans 14, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 17 reads, how then shall we call on him whom they shall not believe? Or how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear apart from preaching? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's calling these Roman saints to serve missions, to go out and preach the gospel for every member to be a missionary and to share their faith, to let the word be known. Chapter 11 moves on to an interesting analogy of the remnant of Israel is chosen by covenant and is talking about this allegory of an olive tree. He says in verse one, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite indeed, a descendant of Benjamin. That's when we find out which tribe he's from. But his logic and discussion is often misunderstood in Christianity because they start with the view of understanding Romans through the perspective of only the elect are saved and we do not have agency. And we, the atonement is limited. You know, that, that view of the tulip completely changes their understanding of the law of Moses. Verse six says, if it's by grace, then it is no more of works. But I mentioned earlier that 10 times in this letter, he says, then does that mean we don't obey the law? God forbid. You know, he's just trying to differentiate between the 10,000 oral laws and Christ's laws. He wants us to live by Christ's laws. Chapter 11, verse 13 to 14 in the NIV, it reads, I am the apostle to the Gentiles in the hope that I might somehow arouse my people. Isn't this interesting? Sometimes when we're attacked or when we think there's something wrong, it gets us activated to study more. And he said, I think that if I can preach the Gentiles, then the Israelites will also hear the word and react and become stronger in their faith and understand who their promised Messiah was. It was Jesus of Nazareth. Continuing on now with the allegory of the olive tree in Romans chapter 11, from verses 11 to 24, he gives this analogy, but I'm just going to start with verse 17 here. In some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakers of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, and you boast against the branches. This is an interesting allegory as we look at Jacob 5, or Zenos' allegory of the olive tree, with Paul. But there are many differences. So in my chart and in my handout, I've got them all written out in charts and tables. Zenus has five trees. Paul has one tree. 
The allegory in Jacob chapter five is all about the fruit, the desire for fruit. But in Paul's allegory, it's a desire for branches. And in Jacob five, there's a Lord of the vineyard. And in Paul's account, there isn't, but God is doing the grafting. As we look throughout the Old Testament, I don't know if you remember the last time you read it through, but in Judges and Isaiah and Hoshea, we have many, many, many references to a vineyard, an olive orchard, being grafted in and adopted tribes coming in. And this analogy is saturated the scriptures. And we believe that whether Zenus's allegory or one that predated Zenus has filtered all through the thousands of years of biblical history. In verse 29, the King James Version reads, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now, this is a negative participle, but God will honor his side of the covenants. I like the NIV better when it reads, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So it's not without repentance, but God has called you. Please honor your covenants. Please hold to the rod. Keep your heart open and your mind humble and meek to the Spirit's teachings. Paul is not saying that there's irresistible grace and that only the saints can persevere. As I mentioned in those last two steps of the tulip, Paul is saying our rejection of God causes our imprisonment, not the other way around. God is not limiting us. We, our self-centered natural man, is what is limiting us. I'm so grateful for another witness. The Book of Mormon completely turned this misunderstanding on its head. Second Nephi 2 and 9 and Mosiah and Alma 42, you know, they all address this issue. Joseph was able to get it right before the church was organized. He, the Book of Mormon was completely helped to reorganize this misunderstanding that saturated. You know, we have about 90% of the Americans in the early 18th century are following the Reformed tradition. They are saturated in this theology and the restoration chops down every single one of their main tenets. Chapter 11, verses 33 to 36 is a beautiful chiasmus, and I've got it written out here on my slides, this beautiful praise of God. He starts out, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, and then that's repeated later on. And he says next, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Paul is such a gifted literary writer and his poetry in, filled with Old Testament scriptures. And the next one he quotes is Leviticus 24. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And then the center of the chiasmus is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever been given God that God should repay him? And from him and through him and to him are all things. That's Job chapter 41. And then he ends, to him be glory forever. Amen. So he, he has these beautiful mosaics of Old Testament scripture that he pieces together in poetry and in a chiastic form. You know, he is so well-trained in writing. You know, I think he's probably the Neil A. Maxwell of the early church. Now we have a lot of Christian commandments. In Romans chapter 12 to 15, he introduces 50 commandments that he wants us to live. And he talks about living by sacrifice and our conduct and our relationship to God. And I just want to remind you that if we just look at those few verses that says, then are we saved by works? No, it's by grace that we're saved. And yet, as the development of his, of his um, thesis grows, he has 50 commandments that he introduces here. Chapter 12 starts out with this relationship between the Jewish law and the Christian gospel. You know, the, the law is to lead us to Christ's love. He says in verse one, brothers and sisters, this is, of course, the NIV. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies 
Now, in the Weimount New Testament, it reads, present your faculties to him. But going back to the NIV, it says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And I also love the King James there that says, this is your true service. Our worship should be service and our service should be worship. The two are interchangeable there. Continuing on in verse 14, he says, blessed are those who persecute you. Do you recognize that from the Beatitudes? Paul quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the Savior. I think the records were available now that people who are later converts like Paul are able to have Christ's teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount. His most important sermon is all throughout Paul's epistle. So that suggests that the writings were already being circulated from our Savior. Continuing on now in verse 16, he says, live in harmony. Continuing down a little ways, be of the same mind one toward another. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. And overcome evil with good is verse 21. You know, all these beautiful statements from our Savior. As we move now to chapter 13, he talks about this need to respect authority. And the first seven verses are one little unit. He starts out in chapter 13, verse 1, with a Joseph Smith edition that's very important. Let every soul be subject unto the righteous powers, for there is no power in the church but of God. So he's saying, follow the prophet. He's not saying there's no power He's not saying Caesar is of God. He's not saying, you know, your Roman um, leaders or your Jewish leaders are of God. He's saying the church is being directed by God. It's Christ's church. Verse six is also a Joseph Smith translation. And instead of saying, pay ye tribute, he says, pay your consecrations and unto them, for they are God's ministers. He's talking about citizenship in the church, a heavenly citizenship. You know, this is the Roman Empire. He's talking to Romans. He's talking about people who wear their toga, who, who don't have to pay taxes, who live off other people's, you know. He's talking about Nero. Actually, the time that this letter is being written, Nero is the Caesar. He's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that Nero was righteous. I'm saying follow your leaders in the church. Although I do have to say one good thing about Nero. About this time, he said, taxation across the empire is out of control and we do need to control it. So there's a little bit of history for that one as well. Verse eight of Romans 13 reads, Oh, no man, anything, but love one another. The RSV reads, leave no debt outstanding. You know, we've got to be financially responsible for ourselves. And he continues on in verse 10 of the new Jerusalem Bible. Love can cause no harm to your neighbor. So love is the fulfillment of the law. And you remember, the first half of the Ten Commandments all refer to loving God. Thou shalt um, have no gods before me and, and don't take the Lord's name in vain and keep the Sabbath day holy. You know, all those are loving God. And then the last half, starting from obeying your parents and not killing and committing adultery and stealing and coveting, you know, all of those talk about loving your neighbor. So he's saying that love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, Christ introduced the higher law, which is to love as he loved. And that's, I think, what Paul is trying to teach here. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12 continue on. It is high time to awake out of sleep, skipping a little bit, and let us put on the armor of light. Skipping down to verse 14, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify and desire the flesh. You know, later on, he's going to talk about the armor of God in Ephesians 4 and 6. And in Galatians, he'll talk about clothing yourself in the Lord. But remember, the word clothe is to endow or to endue. And part of our covenants are that we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. 
And in everything we do throughout the day, we do it in the name of Christ. Whether we're eating a meal, whether we're going to work, we dedicate that time and we ask for God's blessing on it. I love the image of putting on the name of Christ every day and in everything we do, asking it to be done in the name of Christ. I think this will allow us to have the same kind of feelings that we, people do on their missions when they are living 100% to follow our Savior. Chapter 14 moves ahead to strive for the unity of the church. There's a lot of fractions between the Gentile converts and the Roman converts. Do you remember before Nero, we have Claudius as the Caesar. And Claudius, when he was serving between 41 and 54, got so fed up with the arguments between the Jews and the Christians that he asked all of them to leave. He said, everybody's out of Rome. We talked a little bit about that in the book of Acts. But we found a statement from this time period that's recorded in the Anchor Bible that says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances as the instigation of one Christos, he expelled them from Rome. Claudius is deporting all the Jews came because of the arguments between the Christians. And so Paul is saying, hey, 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 no contentions. Let's jump in with chapter 14, verse 1. I'd like to read it from the NIV translation. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. I feel like this is so applicable to our day and age where contention is such a problem. And our beloved prophet has asked us, get rid of the contention within. I find that every time there's a source of contention, I try to set a goal to say, I'm going to do it again by the end of the month, or I'm going to do it again by the time I partake of the sacrament. I've got to come at peace with this. He continued on with this theme in the last chapter. Do you remember in chapter 13, he said, him that eateth despise him that eateth not. One day was more sacred to another. That's 13.5. And 13.10 said, why dost thou judge thy brother? You know, he's just fed up with all the contention that's going on. Chapter 14, he continues on in verse 15 and 20. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. This is the NIV translation. Do not destroy the work of God. For the sake of food, allow people to have their agency, allow people to believe what they believe. But we need to be beings who are seeking the gifts of charity, seeking the gifts of long-suffering and patience and gentleness and meekness and kindness and love unfeigned. Verse 17 says in the BSB, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when I feel the spirit, I feel joy. It's not ecstatic happiness. It is a peaceful feeling of joy. I can feel joy in the hardest times because I am linked to my Savior. In fact, sometimes during the hardest times is when I feel the Savior's love the best. Chapter 15 begins by encouraging us to follow Christ's example. Verses 1 to 7 are a unit, and it starts out in verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Skipping down to verse three, for even Christ pleased not himself. You know, we see this over and over as our savior became the servant, the suffering servant in the last supper and the suffering servant in Gethsemane and on the cross as he atoned for us. As we continue on in the same chapter, verses eight to 13 talks about our conduct with our neighbors to minister to the Gentiles. Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promise might be confirmed. Or in the KJV, it says, ministers of the circumcision. And I thought that was confusing. The circumcision is another word for covenant. So that's why I used this NIV translation there. 
the promises might be confirmed, I think is what he's talking about. Because Paul is making this translation from talking about the Jewish Christians to now moving on to talking about the Gentile Christians. Chapter 15 of the NLT reads, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely. Here's another translation, the NLT of chapter 15, verse 14. He's reasoning, you are full of goodness. You know these things so well that you can teach each other all things about them. And I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Jumping now down to verse 27, he also again uses this idea of of material or carnal things. And so I'm going to read from the NIV. The Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings. They've also shared with them material blessings because they're living this law of consecration. You know, they're sharing food. They're helping each other, sharing money. Now, in chapter 15, verse 25, he says, I can't come to you right now. I've got to go to Jerusalem. You know, I'm going to leave where I am right now in Corinth or Ephesus. He's writing these letters. I, I got to come to you later, but I got to go to Jerusalem now. And he then ends with all these greetings. And he has greetings to so many people. Half of the names are Latin, half of the names are Greek. And he knows Phoebe and he commends her to the saints in verse one. And he knows Priscilla and Aquila, and he admonishes people to be kind and to accept Timothy. He's sending Timothy, his co-worker, that's clear down in 1621. And then the fellow who's acting as the scribe says, hey, it's me. Hi to some of you too. I love you too. And then Paul ends saying, and it's my own handwriting right here. I'll sign my, my name to this. I've read it. I've approved it. This is my letter. Thus we end one of the greatest treatises on the gift of grace that our Savior has given us in Scripture, but also an epistle that is misunderstood many times. I pray that you can be drawn closer to the Savior as you study it prayerfully through the understanding and the gift of the restoration. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.